Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Welcome to this 315th installment of the H2O Podcast. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Harvey. And, uh, surprise, we got a little bit of a graphic refresh. I had about five spare minutes the other day, and I thought, well, why not? Because we're kind of updating things on uh, on some different things here. So, just just a little bit of a facelift, just some, you know, some sparklies. So, you uh, want to keep things interesting for you guys. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. So, yeah, there it is. There's da- I see Dave in the chat. Welcome. Good to see you. How are you doing, sir? Evening. How, uh, how, Me? Yeah, you. Well, yeah. I wasn't sure which one of us you were talking to. Well, I mean, I could ask Dave how he's doing, but the response is going to be delayed because of the factor of the broadcast and the whatnot. But right, how are you right, doing? Yeah, no. How are you doing, Tim? I'm fine. How are you? Oh. I, uh, I'm I had a, a good, product, productive day at work and uh, uh, got some... Fun editing stuff done this weekend, so. No. Well, that's good. I uh, want to give a shout-out to our podcast listeners. We've got people in uh, Spain, Russia, where is he? Germany, Poland. I see Portugal. That's one I haven't seen in a while. Italy, uh, the U.K., Canada. So good to have all of you listeners with us. I do want to invite you to uh, check out the live video. Uh, every now and again, you know, we we pop up with some visual or something that kind of helps the show move along. But I don't know that we're going to do too much of that tonight because our topic is <coughs> a little bit, not really esoteric, but it's kind of spun out of some different things that we've talked about before. And the the way things are now in in film and television are not always the way things used to be. And, you know, these days, it's really not any big thing for a particular actor to jump back and forth between television and movies and animation and even TV commercials, really. But back in the day, that just was not done. So we, it, it, we've peripherally touched on it every now and again. So we thought we'd spend, spend a, a, a particular episode dedicated to that. Because it has evolved uh, over, the, over the years. We have actors that are now showing up in TV productions that, that you know, 10 years ago, five, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, wouldn't have dreamed of being on television. Because we're a movie star. I mean, Liam Neeson, for example, is a good, a good, uh, a good recent uh, example of this. Because the interviews about him showing up in Obi Wan generally tended to have him sitting there saying, "Well, it's a TV show. If it were a movie, I'd consider it. But you know, it's a, it's a Disney Plus. It's a TV show. You know, almost kind of casually." Nose in the air. Well, that's a television show, so it's beneath me. <coughs> harump, harump. And then, of course, he shows up at the end of Obi-Wan Kenobi as, as Qui-Gon's force goes. So everybody kind of went, ah. 
Well, I, that seems a little bit more like trolling, uh, or or maybe not as much trolling as um, misdirection, because one thing that that we should probably make uh, there's some distinctions here that go with the American television audience versus the American movie audience. Yeah, British actors like Liam Neeson moved much more fluidly between stage, TV, and film. It's a much smaller market. Right. You you go where the work goes, and you don't have you don't um, one of the one of the things that actually made movie stars movie stars is that there's only so many slots in the cinema for X number of movies, which means by default, there's fewer roles, which means that if somebody becomes a movie star, if someone becomes, say, Tom Cruise, you're looking forward to the new Tom Cruise picture. Right. And there's only room for one Tom Cruise at a time because it's Tom Cruise. He's right there. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think I, I would suspect, although I do not know and I'm not cannot speak for Liam Neeson. Uh, I understand that there's issues with communicating with Liam Neeson involving finding you and, and things. <laughs> and so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be. And he's older than I am, but I'm probably more fragile than he is. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to push that. But I would suspect it, that was a whole lot of, you know, not exactly trying to uh, uh draw attention to a tv appearance yeah. but i i but 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 that attitude <clears throat> real or not is was very much um seems to be the norm for a lot of actors is that you didn't want to go to television you could come from television mm -hmm. yeah and a lot of a lot of movie stars did but going back to television while you were still a hot star, was like you had fallen. If you were in your sixties or seventies coming to TV, that's that's different. Now you're a character actor, right? But if you were and 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 it kind of became a big deal if if um, Joan Collins say, and I'm using her for a specific example, she was a huge television star mm -hmm. but prior to being a huge television star she was a huge movie star but then her kind of acting and her kind of roles were no longer what people were watching so moving to television was a keep working logical kind of thing but that was an example of you know okay her film career is essentially over now you become a TV star. Yeah. Um, and then it you're was very rare. That you're, yeah, you're, yeah. And, and, you know, this doesn't stop you from being a gigantic star on television. Um, so, but it's a, it was for a long time, it was very much, and, and a large part of that comes out of the fact that before there was television, there were the movies. And movie stars were like, you know, from the 1920s on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stars changed, but the idea, you know, the, the, you know, you went to see a Rudolph Valentino movie. You didn't care what it was about. 
It was Rudolph Valentino. It was the guy from The Sheik. That's why you would deceive, you know, that's what it was. Uh, and then, of course, even then, you went from these are amazing silent stars, and then suddenly sound comes along, and some of them got out of the film industry and moved back to theater, a lot of them, uh, because they didn't have voices for audio. <coughs> right. Uh, who was it? It was... Was it who? Who was it that had the higher pitched voice? Was it Valentino? Uh, it might have been Valentino. I can't remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was just you don't you you hear a voice come out of a you if you don't ever see the hear the person's voice and you just see their face. Mm. And it's interesting reversal now because I was just thinking about this the, uh, the other day. There's a podcast that I listened to. Um, what is it? Uh, Unsolved mysteries. Um, They've got an, uh, an Unsolved Murders um, sub-spinoff series of, of their Unsolved Mysteries main series. Right. And it's, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that I can listen to and work at the same time. I don't have to concentrate so much on it. Um, and I, But you get your you get this idea in your head of what these these people look like. I've, I've never seen a photo of them. And so I went to the website and went, what do these guys look like? And I was like, huh. Not what you expected. Looked, well, he looked kind of like I expected, which made me realize I was thinking of him as this like sort of gen, almost, and this is not a slight to, the, to the, uh, the, the guy, but it's almost like a generic TV actor look. And he's mm -hmm. done television and he's, he's, a, he's a, not just a voice guy, but he's done, the, but he's not like, you know, extraordinarily unique looking whereas i thought she would be older based on her voice because to me her voice sounds like a uh, a lady in maybe her 50s or 60s and i would say that just based on appearances she's not that old so i'm like oh okay that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> well and and dave makes a point here about you know comparing bbc to to some of the network television stuff here in in the us you know, the costume dramas and, you know, that kind of thing. Because, you, you know, like you were talking about with the difference between uh, film and TV and stage over there, a lot, of, a lot of times you get staged productions on television. That, mm -hmm. you know, it's, and, and we see this sometimes with Fathom Events, for example, where, right. you know, you'll have the Nutcracker in the movie theaters for a couple of nights or some, you know, great... Great, great plays, great experiences. You know, the, you know the Metropolitan Theater or whatnot. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and, and Johnny Lee Miller did a did Frankenstein. Frankenstein was it two men show with Frankenstein? Yeah, ten years ago now, something like that. Yeah, um, and uh, they've switched. They switched roles, so one was the doctor and one was the monster. And then the, and they'd flip. Then they'd flip it, uh, and uh, yeah, of I course think. This, I think it would be fun to take our uh, one of one of the things that we wanted to do, that we've wanted to do for a number of years is do radio dramas. Maybe we ought to contact Fathom Events and say, "Hey, you know what? Here's what we can do. You remember that thing called Alien Voices? Mm. Kind of like that, only not as expensive. <laughs> and see what happens. Maybe. Right. I don't know. Right. 
Well, and and John Delancey has said he's willing to he's willing to sell the license to anybody who wants to produce it, just not him. <laughs> so, right, we've got well, a shot. Well, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. So you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing where you can you can use relatively unknown people for voice work because mm-hmm. you know you're you're looking for the voice you're not less you're not necessarily looking for the presence or the character or the physicality or anything like that and voice acting gives you an opportunity to open up to people playing certain parts that they might not otherwise play oh right i mean yeah there's there's so many actors who have just the kind of have these amazing voices and and you get a description of the character, maybe maybe in the audio production, and and that's this this description, or you know the character from another medium. Yeah. And you so you get that image in your head, and then you see that person, and it's like, that's that's who's making that sound, that amazing, that you know, that incredible voice. Right. Um, there's a, uh, uh, and and to be honest, I have I have gone after a big audiobook listener, and we've talked about this before, but. I've actually picked up books based on the voice actor who is who's doing the mm-hmm. the reading. Uh, um, there's a there's a British lady named Moira Cork who I just I think she's got an amazing voice, and so I have I have found other books by her, <laughs> and I'm like you know I, stuff I would not normally pick up just because it I, it would not that it's a bad book or it's even something that's outside a genre that I like it's just that I I would have to go hunting for it sure. to find it randomly right yeah. not an author I recognize but because of following her voice to another book I've come across some really fun books that I would I think I would never have come across if I was just like you know Wandering up and down an aisle. These are things that wouldn't necessarily get end cap placement, right? Right. So. Well, and and along those lines, I remember, um, what was it? I think it was, it was an RV commercial that was one of the first to use a celebrity voice. Because Tom Selleck ended up doing some stuff for the RV travel community. And before that, you didn't have really a whole lot of actors doing TV commercials. You know, because mm-hmm. you, had, you had your movie stars. You had your I, I act in movies. And television was beneath them. And then you had your television people. And TV commercials were beneath them. Because and and then all of a sudden people realized just how lucrative it could be was oh I've just got to stand at a booth for ten minutes and read this thing okay well but again the, that that was very much an American thing yeah you would find a lot of movie stars making doing TV commercials in say Japan or right um, yeah because how many like, how many of those surfaced online once the internet became a thing I mean we see oh, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger and. and, and, and uh, yeah. uh, Sean Connery did some, and you would find these ones where it's like, you know, th- this is stuff they would never do for an American audience. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, Dave. There, there, there are those those infamous or or famous, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Those commercials with Ricardo Montalban talking about the rich Corinthian leather. 
Well, and Ricardo Montalban is an interesting, uh, an interesting example of someone who moved through TV, film, and commercial work mm -hmm. much more smoothly than a lot of other people at the time. And some of that came out of the fact that if you were a, had a unique look, a unique sound, if you could slide into certain kinds of roles um, that were almost that became somewhat iconic right. in any medium, you had an easier time of it. People, people were more forgiving, and I guess I air quotes here, forgiving. Um, because while I'm sure, I'm, while I'm certain, uh, because egos, um, that there were plenty of, of film actors who were like, oh, I, I am above television. Mm -hmm. some, of it, some of it was the fact that that was the perception. You could maybe want to do a TV series, but your agent was going to look at you and go, oh, no. We can't have that. Right. Because because the perception was that, you know, it was a step down. You're slumming. Uh, yeah. And, and whether or not you, I mean, you might, you were like, oh, I want to be on, you know, this show so bad. And they'd be like, no, do you want to <laughs> kill your career? But it'd well, be fun. And no. And then you had Batman 66 with Cesar Romero playing the Joker and having the time of his life. You know, and you've got, you know, Burgess Meredith but, and, and Vincent Price as Egghead. And, you know, uh, I think Jaja Gabor was even on that at, at one point. But also look at the look at the point in their career that they were doing that. Yeah, this was this was what you this was again. It, it was OK because and again, serious air quotes here. That part of their career was over. Yeah, they weren't the leading man, leading lady anymore. They were the character actors, right. and and that was and that tells you a number of things. It tells you um, how long the shelf life was for actors during that time period. Yeah, this is it's still there's still some of this here. I mean, if you're not young and pretty. I mean, Hollywood, Hollywood likes young and pretty. That's, and it's well. That's why we're not in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, and, and in fair, in fairness to the American movie system, every movie system prefers young and pretty. Sure. Um, and so, and 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 pretty in a generic way, handsome in a generic way, right? Because you know, it's you're appealing to trying to appeal to the broadest audience. Um, now, some. Uh, um, British British film and television, um, Indian film. Um, I've seen some stuff with some Russian uh, science fiction and horror. They're less concerned about the star being conventionally attractive, you know, conventionally handsome, conventionally mm -hmm. beautiful, um, and that's just some of that. The, yeah. They don't the the gloss of of what Americans consider to be attractive is not well, the same from country to country you look There's at some you look at uh das boot for example i mean wolfgang peterson just passed away and so people are talking mm -hmm. about his career and you get somebody like jürgen prochnow who's not i mean he's he's rugged looking and i mean he's he's a good looking guy but you know he's not your square jawed sean connery right. you know pierce brosnan Tom Cruise type, 
he's you know he's he's got some he's got some rough some rough edges around him but he's a star and and he's recognizable and you you have him coming out of Dust Boat and then what was it the seventh seal with mm-hmm. Demi Moore where he's playing the he's playing Jesus coming back for the for the second coming and I'm like well that's an interesting casting because well then you hop you know, over to um, the keep where he played a uh, a Nazi soldier mm-hmm I mean, he's 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 one of those folks who not only has a very distinct look, but it's also a very flexible look. He was yeah. he's an example of a character actor who made who was able to be both a movie star and continue to be a character actor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and just for the record, I do see the flashing frame on on the animation. I'm going to have to fix that. But I, I will fix that. So hopefully it's not too much of a distraction. Because I keep looking at him, I was like, "What am I looking at?" And I finally realized what it is: is these these white frames around our video. Uh, I guess is not the same length as what I set for the for the background video. So there's this there's this flash, this one frame at the end of the loop where it disappears. I'm like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> so now I gotta go back and completely redo it. So, but see the other the other thing though. As you talk about, you know, between between movies and film, uh, between movies and, and TV, and you get something like the Marvel the Cinematic Universe, for example, where you have people who are in the movies, people like Samuel Jackson, who descend into the realm of the television doing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., for example. And then you have actors... Serious actors who have made a career of doing these really meaty, meaningful, to the scenery, really get in and dig into those character movies like Robert Redford and Glenn Close and Michael Douglas, and they start showing up in these movies. And the first time I thought, Michael Douglas? You know, well, and, it, and I heard, you know, you know you, you've got William Hurt, you have, you know, but when, when Robert Redford added, it got, got added to a, to a call sheet, I thought, no, they're pulling our leg. But it's, again, it's, their careers are so well established at that point that they can do this kind of thing and they can, oh, they yeah. can sit there and they can say, well, sure. Why not? I mean, it, it'll be fun for the grandkids. That's always, that's always what we hear. Right. I mean, Glenn Close sits there and says, they told me I had to do it. You know, well, well, some, of, some of that comes out of the fact that, that when you are playing, especially uh, in of course, do, people who do voice work have the much more flexibility here, but for your fel- film and television actors, it's very, very easy to get typecast. Oh yeah, and the expectation once you get once you become known as a serious actor, um, it, the the idea that you would do something like a superhero movie is people are like no, and you're like, but I want to do a superhero movie, and yeah. their agent goes, okay, let me explain why you're famous. <laughs> Okay, but there comes a point where I mean Robert Redford at this point in his career, can you? Who would tell him he can't do it? Yeah. Who Who would really have the 
Well, you know, he, the flip side of that is how many filmmakers making a cape movie, making a superhero movie, a comic book movie, how many people would sit there and say, I know Robert Redford would be perfect for this. I mean, you just don't go there. Well, yeah, and it comes back to the typecasting again, too. Yeah. I think that, you know, there, and I think that there's, um, it's all part of the same thing, really, for, for the difference between film and television. Remember, of course, that while Bruce Willis, um, you know, became a movie star with Die Hard. Mm -hmm. And when they were casting that film, people were like, you can't cast Bruce Willis in this movie. The moonlighting he's that, guy? He's the moonlighting guy. Yeah. He's the, he's the, he's this, you know, the smart Alec, uh, with the, with the receding hairline on, on moonlighting. Nobody wants to see that in a movie. Yeah. And well, then of course. You flip that. You've got Sybil Shepard, who was established movie performer, actress mm -hmm. in moonlighting on TV. Like what's Sybil Shepard doing there? You know, because well, she, you know, she had, what was that? What was that movie that she did with? Oh, uh, the one that actually established her, but she had the affair with the director, and I I can't even remember what. Yeah, it was. I can't remember off the top of my head. Well, it, there's, so so there's one of the one of the ways, obviously, to you know go to TV from films is that you were at that air, air quotes again. A lot of air quotes this episode. That stage, I should have a counter. I know um, that stage of your career, but there was also. If you were a movie star in a genre mm -hmm. that was no longer popular, it wasn't you. It wasn't your performances. It was the thing that made you famous. Yeah. Stopped being the thing. Yeah, like Westerns. So Westerns, disaster movies. Um, although disaster movies moved over to the television. And then, of course, a lot of those movie stars whose roles had gone away found their way to tv disaster movies yeah um which you know for a while was a great place to see some of your favorite old movie actors well and you have you know like star trek for example where you have these people who be essentially became stars on television after the fact in syndication but mm -hmm. they had been typecast because of star trek and you have, you know, books like These Are the Voyages that detail out all of the efforts that they, were, that they made in order to get away from Star Trek. I mean, Shatner was doing Summerstock Theater. You know, uh, Nimoy had gone to Broadway and was doing everybody. Everybody's doing all this stuff. And Star Trek was done. Now we right. have to move past those uniforms and those characters and get work doing other things. And they weren't able to do that. And, you know, right. Nichelle Nichols pivoted into recruiting for NASA and capitalizing on her fame as Uhura to help recruit for NASA. But, you know, Jimmy Dewan essentially disappeared. I mean, he did Star Command, Jason of Star Command or, or Space Academy or whichever it was. And, you know, Shatner did everything, Kingdom of the Spiders, and he eventually went on to T.J. Hooker. All right. But, you know, what happened to George Takei? George Takei did the Green Berets with John Wayne. He should be a bigger star than he actually is. And we know well, George Takei, he, George Takei is more, I don't want to say famous, but he's more recognizable now as a mouthy activist rather than a, a successful actor. He came back for Heroes because there's legacy for him now. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, Walter Koenig had to reinvent himself for, you know, with Babylon 5, you know, because right. none of them could get work. Right. Did, and, and, and imagine if, you know, if you're imagine that you are in that role from a movie star standpoint, where at one point you were headlining, you were mm-hmm. you were the name and what for whatever reason you stopped being the it girl or you stopped being, you know, that dashing leading man um, because, you know, you got older um, or or the farce fell out of style or yeah. the, you know, the Western stopped being, you know, the the 1970s did a lot to derail, um, you know, a lot of, of really prominent movie styles, you know, that that a lot of people had heavy investment in their careers in yeah you know the crime picture but you know the gritty realism again back into air quotes but um of of the 1970s you know a lot of that kind of stuff you know if you were a a star in westerns if you were a star you know if you were in romantic farces the dance picture fred astaire and ginger rogers you know once once the musicals stopped being things that you know brought people in you know you you ended up with fred astaire on television yeah starbucks dad you're like what how did that how is you know and but the thing is is that you know um what is it the the i didn't i didn't get small the pictures did Mm -hmm. um you know to, to some degree that's some to some degree that's actually what happens yeah so I mean, it's it, by the way, there was the last picture show is the one was I was thinking about you. for Civil Shepherd. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I I remember, I remember when when that episode of Battlestar Galactica aired first in 1978, and I you know special guest star Fred Astaire, and I went, what? I mean, I'm eight years old, I and start. even then I recognize this is kind of a kind of an odd thing here this is fred astaire on battlestar galactica i mean he's a dancer and he's doing science fiction and it was such a weird juxtaposition for me i had to wrap my head around it it took me a little bit but Mm -hmm. but you know he's an actor people people think of him as a dancer first but he's got to act in all those movies too and so you get this you know this this expectation that he's good at one and nothing else. And I, I, again, you get into the typecasting. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a dancer, not an actor. And and yeah, it's it's interesting to see how all of that works because it's not just the agents; it's the audience. Well, and in many ways, the agents. Yes, that's it is yeah, exactly. Norma thank you, thank you for the right quote there. Um, in many ways, um, that's what's driving the agents too, because the agent. The agent's big thing is that they want their percentage of you know, their agent. They get a percentage. Yeah. They want to make sure you keep working. And if the audience isn't asking for what you want to do, you're not going to do that. If you've got a, your agent is going to try and protect you from making those mistakes. That's their job. Yeah. How, how successful they are. Well, but at, you know. at the same time, you look at something. I mean, we we we've talked a little bit. Um, 
we've talked a little bit about Sylvester Stallone. We, we got this Samaritan movie that's coming up here pretty soon, right? It's on Amazon. And again, he's at that point in his career where he can do these kind of things. But you also look at when he did Copland. And everybody was so surprised that he took that role. And if I remember correctly, I could have this wrong. I'm old and I've slept. But I, I seem to recall that he had to lobby for that role. Because right. nobody wanted to cast Rocky as an old, fat, out of shape, stay out of trouble sheriff. And he was like, I've got to have this part. And, and honestly, I think that while he has done other good roles, and I think he's done some fine work and some not fine work in the Rocky series. <laughs> um, hey, the first... His, his first performance is Rocky and his most recent performance is Rocky, I think are excellent. Now, when you're but, saying most recent, are you talking about most recent in Creed or in Rocky Balboa? Um, the last actually, official think, Rocky I think movie. Both of those, he does very fine work. Okay. But Rocky Copland, for my movie. money, yeah. Copland is the finest thing he's ever done. And he's so good in that film. And that's an example of a movie where critics loved it audiences went huh and missed out if you've not seen copland guys yeah. i cannot tell you it is it is highly recommended fine, fine work from highly i need i need to find it on dvd somewhere because you know digital media <clears throat> not very trustworthy yeah, hold buy, on to that. Buy um, your physical media, folks. Get your DVDs, your Blu-rays, your laser discs, your VHS tapes. It's owned by Warner Brothers. Everything. Yeah. So get it get it all. Get it all and keep it. Hoard your videos. Right? Seriously, if 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 it's if it's produced by Warner Brothers, folks, this stuff is literally disappearing. Well, from and the I've world. seen I've seen some discussion about that with regard to some of this some of the stuff that's actually have has already been produced that's come away from HBO Max that there's some there's some discussion that this is not a permanent thing that it's moving to like physical media or home video or something like that. Right. The the biggest issue so, there seems to be that the people who actually produced that product were not informed it was going to happen. And yeah, so there's and a whole lot of not can the one thing that we can definitely say right now that Warner Brothers is doing well, Warner Brothers Discovery is doing very poorly is communicating. I had I had heard something along the lines of they were supposed to get told and something happened to a week after the fact. Yeah, that they, it happened. yeah some, somehow somewhere a me the message got dropped. There's a uh, um, I can't remember I can't remember his name. He's one of the one of the creators of one of these animated series that that just disappeared. Um, and he wrote um, a long description. Okay, here's what I know. Here's how people are reacting. Uh, and apparently, a lot of creatives, the folks who actually produce the content. And, and here's a little, okay, I do not work in the industry, okay, but generally speaking, ticking off the people who actually make the stuff <laughs> that you want to sell might not be a good idea. I'm just saying, 
um, apparently there's a whole lot of writers and actors and producers and directors, lawyers, who are not happy. And that could be an issue. So we'll see how it plays out, you know. But it did. It, uh, oh, I'm. We talked about it a little bit, Jason, but we're going to have to come back to Warner Brothers Discovery because you know it's not over. Oh, I know, I know, and it's 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 one of those things where between between Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney, there are decisions that are being made that, depending on your point of view, I will say. Uh, some people think that it's the smart way to go, and some people think not so much. And really, I mean, when you get down to it, bottom line, it is show business. And these people have a, a fiduciary right. responsibility to their shareholders before anything else. And if you're not making a product that sells and makes money then you have to you have to pivot you've got to do something else and, and, and it's kind of like what we do here you know that whole abort and pivot thing that i said when we came back after our break was that every decision that we've got we're going to take take some time and we're going to reevaluate and, and and measure what we're doing and you have those moments where okay do we make an adjustment or do we just drop it and do something else and and disney and warner brothers are faced with that same dilemma because i mean Warner Brothers Discovery has got $43 billion in debt. They got to do something. So, you know, if I, if I make a widget and nobody's buying the widget, it's not very smart of me to keep making the widget and insult the people who aren't buying the widget because they don't want a widget. Well, how dare you not want the widget? That doesn't work. <laughs> so, right. And so a, a lot of people the, on the production the, line get tossed by the wayside, for, unfortunately... But, you know, we got to make profit. The, the, the concern there, and again, we'll, we'll come back to this yeah, on we another episode because it's more developed. But the concern there is that if you, if you screw over your talent enough, and again, this comes down to communication, right? right? The people, the, the actors and the producers and the directors and the crews, they know it's a business. They're aware of that. Um, but if you're not communicating with them, if you're just sitting there going, you know, we've, we've canceled your movie, even though it's in post-production, we've, we've yanked all your, all your animated content off, off its platform. And you don't talk to them about that before you, before you announce it, mm -hmm. you're building some bad blood between you and that company. You're not the only game in town. True. It's not like back in the studio days, and this is part of this loops us back around to what we're talking about. Back in the days of the studio system, where when you were under contract for a studio to a, as a for a movie studio, they basically owned you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they would. And, and the thing is that you could get traded, literally traded to another studio without being consulted. And they would go, yes, we decided that you're going to go over to the Warner lot. But but I'm with MGM. Yeah. No, we sold your contract. Or you have a contract with MGM and Warner Brothers wants to use you for something. So they get to borrow you. Right. And, you know, it's you get this special dispensation between the studios that allows this character, this actor to work for another studio, even though he's under contract with the with the one studio 
you know, we make a deal that allows him to do it the other one. And, right. and, I, and I mean, that's one of the reasons he, why you got United Artists, because, mm-hmm. you know, Charlie Chaplin, Lily Gish, all those, they, they sat there and said, we don't want to work that way anymore. Well, and, and it went on for a long enough that you could have somebody like Humphrey Bogart, you know, you know, you're you're under contract to make X number of films a year. And you don't get to pick those films. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, there's what Doctor Doctor X or something like that um, is Humphrey Bogart's horror picture. Yeah, and it's like he plays a mad scientist. Humphrey Bogart plays a mad scientist. <laughs> okay, I mean, I've seen it. It's a movie. It's a thing. Yeah, he's got he's got a cool streak in his hair. It's very dramatic looking. Yeah, um, but it's not. It's also a film. I've seen and I've never watched more than once. And I own Casablanca. I own The Big Sleep. I own the Big Sleep DVD, which has the multiple versions of Big Sleep on it. And I've watched both of those films a lot because they're great movies. And Dave, you're right. Back in those days, the studios did own the theaters up until 19. When was it? 1927? 19. When was the Paramount decision? it was it was later than because tw- twenty seven. You're still looking at um, that's Cabin of Doctor Caligari came out in twenty seven. Um, so thir- so you're looking at the thirties, thirty something. Yeah, well, and even then, I mean, you're looking at the the change, and this is something else we should talk about at some point. Is the the way that movie theaters used to be owned versus how they're owned now? Because mm-hmm. you had much smaller chains. Yeah. Um, and the the you would not get an evil dead produced today the same way that Sam Raimi was able to produce the evil dead and get it out into theaters when he did, because that movie theater structure doesn't exist anymore. Right. Uh, when I was in college, so this would have been 88 to 92 and then I stayed in Manhattan, Kansas for three years after college. Uh, I worked for a movie theater for a good chunk of that time. And there were two theaters in town. Both were, um, uh, one was one was the big, um, well, thank you. Uh, one was the, the one you got the big pictures at. One was the smaller kind of art house thing owned by the same theater chain. Um, and because we were the only theater chain in town, we showed all the releases. Plus, we had room left over to sit there and program smaller pictures in there, which yeah. a lot of places don't get the opportunity to do. And we were the only... It was a, it was a small chain, about um, 10, 15 theaters. And we were the only... We were the only theater in that chain to show Jurassic Park because in those days the smaller theater chains would bid if you had multiple theater chains in the same market you would bid with the studio to get that big picture Mm -hmm. and they the guys who ran this theater chain hated to do that (laughs) they did not want to pay any more money than they ever than they ever had to so we were the only ones that got Jurassic Park in uh, in the entire chain so it's like well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take it. 
Yeah. Well, and and you've got uh, an interesting question here from from Dave asking about you know the whole division between TV and film on the other side of the camera as well because you did have some of that. I I distinctly remember when uh, Apple made the 1984 commercial with Ridley Scott and. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, wait, Ridley Scott made TV commercials? Of course, Ridley Scott started in TV commercials. And, you know, of course, at that time, you, he's got Alien under his belt, and, 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 and he's this well-known movie director now, and he makes this TV commercial for Apple, for Macintosh, which aired officially, bought and paid for one time. People seem to forget that part because they're all it's always included in these compilations, the best commercials of every time, all time of whatever. Right. And it's all online. You can find it in various different places. But Apple hated that commercial. Did not want to run that commercial. The the board of directors were at a point where they had decided they were going to not run the commercial until it was pointed out, we've already spent the money for the Super Bowl time and we don't have anything else. So it was one of these by default, well, okay, just run it once and then bury it. And they had that no is. idea what it was about to do. Right. Well, and, and sometimes that's there's a there, there's another thing for our list. Yeah. The, the, the films and TV shows that people thought were not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, there's a little little film about fighting in space uh, that falls into that category, among other things. Right. Or or that 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 uh, that guy who acted in comedy films who he's going to make a superhero movie. What? Right. <clears throat> right. So, I mean, you know, that sort of stuff applies. But um, so in, in terms of the crew. So it depends, really. I mean, for the for your average working person on a set where if you're in craft services if you're in um um, your grip you're you know in audio whatever those things you know set design that stuff there was a lot more movement between film and television but when you got up into your like your cinematographers yeah what they call costumed above the line above the line you saw some of that as well and some of it did come back down to um some of it came to skill set, right? So, and you saw this with Star Trek Five. Um, yeah, is is that when when William Shatner directed that film, he directed it, and it was shot like a TV show. And there's a difference. Well, <laughs> there was, and because <laughs> a lot of this comes back to the the lines have become so blurred, which yeah. is, is is got some real positives to it. Some downsides too, but um, so you look at how that film is shot, and it looks very much like you would see on a television screen. There's a lot less depth of field to it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more framed in a square, a more square uh, focus than opposed to the the widescreen uh, um, uh, layout of of right. film. There's a lot of things that make it look very much like a television show. This did not help. Well, it's, uh, the other it's... the other thing I remember listening to Shatner's audio, audio commentary on that film, 
and he actually talks about coming from television to and now he's directing a movie and one of the things that he found restrictive about being on the Star Trek sets was the fact that you're on the Star Trek sets mm-hmm. and you're in this fixed location you know with TV you can get outside you can you know, you can run and jump and right. have your car chases and whatnot and you know jump on top of a bus for Star Trek you're on the bridge Nobody moves. Nobody goes anywhere. There's no blocking. And he says, so to compensate, since the characters aren't moving that much, I'm going to move the camera. And so he still is looking at it from there has to be movement in the visual. And since everybody's just standing there, I'm going to move the camera around, which I thought was really an interesting insight into his process because... Mm -hmm. He's still trying to make whatever whatever the visual is at least as dynamic as it would be if he were outside and people were walking around. And yeah, you're still you're still blocking it and editing it like it's a TV show, but then you have, you know, what do you mean I can't have my million rock monsters? What do you, what do you mean I right. I don't have industrial light and magic? You know, right. I mean, so he was ham- hampered all through that production on stuff. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. But I also think that, that one thing that we all have, we all took away pretty solidly is that William Shatner is not necessarily the person you would go to to ask to direct a feature film. Jonathan Frakes, also coming from a television background and mm. directing, moving into moving into feature films, there's a different there there was and again this is the the state of things has changed yeah there was a visual distinction between the two part of that came down to money okay you were not using the same cameras on a tv set that you were using on a film set you didn't have the time you were shooting to tape on a film set you were shooting very fast you had 15 16 hour days you were shooting 24 episodes. Yeah. And, and and you're lucky if you get a certain number of pages shot every day. I think I think okay. I'd heard at one point the ideal was something like uh, 8 or 10 pages a day. I mean that's that's a lot. Yeah. And and well, with and episodic TV shows, you're you're looking at you know, you've got 8 days to get it done. Right, if which means the number of takes that you get is, I mean, so the perfor- sometimes the performances that you got on television weren't actually that actor being a bad actor. Right. It's then having not having the time. Yeah, um, I, I remember the story that uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer tells on the on the commentary track for Star Trek Two. There is the scene where they're about to enter the code to drop Reliant Shields, right? You know, using mm-hmm. our console to order Reliant to lower shield. And he says, um, uh, get ready, here it comes. Right? That that line where he mm-hmm. says, here it comes. And he, Meyer talks about how he would sing song and he would telegraph, here it comes. You know, it's like, a, he said, we ended up shooting that line over 90 times to get Shatner so bored with it that it would just come out flat. 
you mm-hmm. would not be able to do that in television. No, ever. Absolutely not. You would ever. never have the time. The Teamsters would throw a fit. And, and they would anybody be else. right to. Yeah, they would be like, right to because you're burn you're burning yeah. money to do that on television. Now these days, what's what we've seen and what this really kind of you know the whole genesis of this kind of this discussion is that the lines have so blurred, and you get and and pros and cons of streaming, right? Now, right. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the thing where you got these very you got you got your Amazons, you've got your Netflixes. Um, you've got your Disney Pluses. You've got whatever right. Warner Brothers Discovery is going to turn into. And the thing is that you have to have content. And and where however you feel about the Warner Brothers Discovery thing, they're not wrong in that you need to have good content. Yes. And good content means spending money. And whether you like it or not, and there's some arguments against this, which I think are fair, um, you have something like game of thrones comes along Mm. and it changes the landscape yeah um westworld comes along and especially season one changes the landscape i think Um, i think another thing too that factors into that is the switch from four by three square televisions to widescreen mm -hmm. and at, at the beginning there was the whole letterbox thing right? right because in back in the day those of us who are of an age are going to remember this home video you had two you had well the beginning you had one option you had pan and scan right to fill the screen of the four by three and you don't get all of the uh, picture uh. because movie theaters you know it's 16 by 9 right. it's not your thing and you had pan and scan and then somebody said well what if we shrunk it to fit and you get these black bars at the top and the bottom of the screen. It ended up being called letterboxed. There were people. There were people who were like, I am getting less yeah. of the thing <laughs> because they've got these black bars that are eating up the space. And it's like, yeah. it's like no, okay. you're getting the total entire That's... picture now. Uh, but letter... now, in, fairness, in fairness, televisions were this big. Yeah. So, But letterbox led to... Well, if we're going to be showing these movies widescreen on television, why don't we make a television that's widescreen and we can get rid of the black bars? And that's where we get 16 by 9 widescreen televisions now. Well, and the and the and, especially and when you look at the your the, TV shows what, are now movies. Two, 2005 to 2010, the the ability for television shows to start shooting on high definition. Yeah. Uh, the cost of that came down so much. I mean, the we you know it's 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 out of my price range and always will be. But the the uh, when the red came along, this thirty thousand dollar HD camera, right? People were like, it changes everything. And I... it's a nice camera, but my DSLRs are are five thousand bucks each, and I got news. Uh, I will I will buy another one of those before I buy another. You know. Oh, uh, yeah, the, by a red. It, when the red first came out, my my initial thought, and and my and I still think this to this to to this day. Unless you know all of the ins and outs of every single setting that you can manipulate for a reg, then you essentially have a giant brick. There is it's a challenging there is camera. yeah. I mean, you have to know everything about that camera. 
in order to make the best use of it. You're not just getting the bragging rights. Well, it's shot on the red. Well, unless you know how to use the red, that don't count for beans. I could take right. my. I mean, no. I shot this this Panasonic SD camera over here. I shot a film with it. I shot I shot a feature film with it, and it looks fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell that it's not high definition, but you know, it's. Like, I have I have a couple of friends of mine who are cinematographers. One of which shoots on an Arri Alexa, mm-hmm. which is another very expensive camera. Um, now. Aria Alexas are really good cameras. They are they they have a very distinct chipset yeah. in there, and they get a very interesting and cool image. But I have long said that I want this cinematographer to go do to do some sort of challenge thing with another cinematographer I know who who has a high end DSLR, who makes beautiful images with those with that camera, because. We're looking at a, a six thousand dollar camera and a twenty thousand dollar camera, and quite frankly, both of them make gorgeous images. I'd love to see what that would actually go up as like a real head to head competition. It's it's the garbage in, garbage out principle. I mean, you know, the stuff that's shot on a camera, and I and and I've said this before. You and I've talked about this before. What goes into the camera, what is shot there on set. That matters more than the actual camera that you're using because if you if your setup is right, then you know you you light it properly and your camera movement is is the right thing and you've got the right lens on it and all of these things, you can make a, a, an effective visual. Um, and you know from a practical standpoint if you can set it up such that you don't have to do a whole lot of changes in between setups right that's even better you know whatever whatever your camera is i I worked with a director of photography one time his name was jim sullivan and his habit was i'm going to light it i'm going to take extra time at the beginning of the setup and i'm going to light it in such a way that i can move the camera anywhere and I can shoot this scene. Right. So you yeah. take the time and you get one setup. And then maybe, okay, I move the camera over here. Maybe I've got to tweak this light just a little bit, fudge it over here and feather it down this right. way. You're not taking 30 minutes to an hour to change your lighting setup every time you move the camera. Right. And that makes a huge difference. Not only in terms of the amount of time that you're taking, but also the consistency of the shot. Because if the lighting never oh, changes, yeah. your camera goes one place to the other to the other, and there you are. Um, but but you mentioned the, the, the digital, the HD stuff. There was a TV show. It was a soap opera. And this was 1995. I was working at an ABC affiliate when this show came on. It was called The City. At Morgan Fairchild was in the cast, and, and it was one of those ABC daytime things, and we had it. And I remember when that show first came on, it was one of the very first productions that was shot in 24P video. Mm. Because up until then, video was 30, and you got that flat, metallic-looking, you know, right. it looks like yep. video. This one looked like it was shot on film, and I remember looking at it and was going... Wait, this is a daytime soap opera. How could they possibly shoot it on film and turn it around? Because daytime soap operas, you shoot it and it's aired the next day. You know, it's 
that that turnaround time is almost impossible for film. Like, how are they doing this? So we we looked into it, and, and this was the beginning of the 24p movement, mm. where your video cameras were now shooting at the same frame rate as film, which is right. why video started looking like movies. And that cuts down on your cost, and and again starts to blur that line because now you've got little independent small filmmakers who can take these little DSLRs or or you know these SD cameras like I've got here with this Panasonic, and it's got a 24p setting, and I can get it, and it looks like movie. It looks like film, right. and you're shooting to tape. There was a there was a big deal made about an episode of House where it was involved a building collapse and they had people trapped underground. I remember, yeah. And there's the, it was the kind of setup you literally could not do with the TV cameras that they were using up until the DSLRs became a thing. And so, but here's this camera that is this big. Yep. You know, it's got a it's got a really really shallow depth of field. <laughs> So you're looking at a, a block that's this large that suddenly you can put around a corner and do a thing with like a rock in the way and here's something, I mean, stuff you literally could not do. And at the time, I think people were really, really impressed with, with the visual effect, but it's so ordinary now that it's really, really easy to forget at the time, it was fairly cutting edge. Oh yeah, and, it was it was the talk is, of the town. It was like, look at what they were just about to do. Look, look what they could do. And then and, now, yeah. you've got how many cameras set up in the cockpit of the of the F fourteen for Top Gun? Oh yeah. Well, but I mean, of course, you and I both remember when the GoPros came out. Yeah. And right. it's, like, it's like, this is an HD camera that's the size of a pack of cigarettes for crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, this thing is tiny, and you were getting now, admittedly. The terrible battery life, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But you could do stop motion. You, you could do stop motion with it. You could do time lapse right. with it. it. It was a game right. changer. I mean, it was it was again breakthroughs. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the, the technology has gone a big way. But but looping back around, yes, um, HBO series Game of uh, Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers really made. Um, a huge impact on on blurring television standards and film standards. Mm. Now, of course, um, because Band of Brothers was essentially a television show. It was an episodic series. It was a miniseries. Miniseries, yeah. But it was... Then you go back and you look at something like North and South or Roots mm -hmm. or, you know, some of these... Some of these the big event, Yeah, the event television that was broadcast on the networks back in the day the budgets on those were much much higher than standard television budgets they were shot like movies mm -hmm. they looked much better because again we're shooting on a different schedule we're not worrying about you know the we don't have to do everything in eight hours for a 45 minute show we can yeah. spend two months or three months shooting this thing um and, it's, it's the and, similar and, principle to what we're talking about now, shooting direct for streaming service. Right. Instead of, you know, shooting a movie to go theatrical, we're just going to shoot this for Disney Plus or, or, or HBO Max or whatever. Same kind right, of thing. Right, but now we have this idea that, and, and 
some of it is the the scale, right? So the idea of a 24 episode series makes most TV producers twitch these days <laughs> because cost and time. Yeah. Now you can spend the same amount for or more, honestly, in almost every case. Right. Um, you can spend that but a twenty four a twenty four episode budget in eight episodes, have every episode be far better produced financially, and you're not dealing with the time crunch. And the realities of some of these shows' production schedules turns out people would wait two years in between a uh, series of Game of Thrones. Turns out people would wait two years in between an episode, a series of, of uh, Westworld. Yeah. And they'd come back and watch the next season. So the, the, the idea that you had to have something new every year for a television show also d didn't hold up. I mean, and they're, you know, whether or not, whether or not that's maintainable, because now we've got so many different options. I wonder if that's going to be something that is not going to fall away. Well, because I think it, it, the ability to forget about that thing is always there. Yeah, I think I think part of it, because back back in the day, you had reruns. Now it's a streaming service and it's available on demand. You can watch it whenever. So, yeah, while we're waiting for season 26 of Stranger Things, I can go back anytime I want and I can watch the other 25 seasons of, of Stranger right. Things on Netflix because it's still there. Whereas right. as with movie with uh, with television series back in the day with network television, you had the 22 episodes and then you had the reruns. And then they disappeared. Until until, until video we had home video, yeah. And then right. you were paying thirty dollars a tape for two episodes, right? Sometimes a lot more than that <laughs> right? too. So the model right now um, is you know twenty four, twelve, ten, eight, six, four. The model right now seems to be somewhere between six and ten. Yeah, seems to be the sweet spot that people seem to like right now. And I think that we saw this with the Marvel Netflix shows is that I think overall, with the exception of Iron Fist, all of the shows were really well done and at least one episode too long. Right. Yep. Agreed. I mean, I, I, you and I, you and I talked with, when, uh, um, uh, Luke Cage, we're like, mm -hmm. this is a really good season. And then you sit there and go, but there's, so much filler. Yeah, there were There's that so was that idea. one was two episodes too long. Yeah, and it's, it's it's such a solid show, and you're like going, okay, can I re-edit this for you guys? Can I cut out the? Because <laughs> I mean, and and I think the the one the two shows that didn't feel like that overall was the first season of Daredevil and the first season of Jessica Jones. Right. Those seem to be pretty close to to working out in terms of the schedule, but. Marvel was doing like 13 episodes, 12 or 13 episodes for these shows. Well, and they were, I think what you run into long. was the first season. Cause it was all brand new. 
mm-hmm. and here's the story we want to tell and they do the breakdowns and they figure out okay well this one's going to talk this one's going to take us 12 episodes to tell or it's going to take us 10 episodes or whatnot and since that became the first season and it did so well well that's the model again right. hollywood learns the right. wrong lessons right well season one was 12 episodes so season two has to be 12 episodes well we don't have enough story for 12 episodes so let's stretch it you know instead right. of sitting there and saying well this season's only going to be 10 you know the 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 mandate is well it's got to be 12 episodes because that's what we paid for the first time and that's what people are going to expect well and therein therein lies the part right there is that people are going to expect this is their we're we're at that point of course where fan reaction it's like wait a minute we only got 10 episodes last season was 12 yeah and 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 in fairness to the fans Sometimes we, if you and I saw this a lot too growing up, is that if the show got, you know, if 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 you knew this show was going to be twenty four episodes and they broadcast eighteen, mm-hmm. and then those other episodes didn't show up, if even if they hadn't said that they canceled the show, you, they canceled the show. Yeah. And so there's there's if you're if you're old enough to remember that there's part of you sitting in the back of the mind that season two is only is two episodes shorter. Is there going to be a season three? Even though or when you don't get, you know, when you don't get the expected announcement and the big network presentation, it's like, well, wait a minute. They didn't mention X, Y, Z show. Is it coming back? You get well, that and too. now of course, now of course, the model is to wait until just about you've had a heart attack yeah. about <laughs> your favorite show um, before they announce it's coming back, yeah. or or they wait until you know San Diego Comic Con. You get a Hall H presentation. And, oh, okay, the show's coming back. <laughs> right, and and this can be. I mean. And unfortunately, it's become very, very clear that it's not just the audience who's often waiting. It's the folks who are making that show who are going, I don't know. I mean, but people like people, there's a stream of people asking Neil Gaiman if there's going to be a Sandman season two. And he's like, I don't know. I'd love to be able to answer your question. I don't have an answer because they don't tell me until they tell me. It's like the Orville. You know, people want a fourth season of the Orville. You know, renew the Orville. And nobody, you know, Tom Constantino doesn't know anything. You know, Seth MacFarlane doesn't know anything. And a, a lot of times you'll have, well, it depends on how many people watch on the streaming network. You know, now it's on Disney+. Plus. So, you know, they look at numbers and, and again, it's a business and you've got a fiduciary responsibility to deliver a product that people are going to buy and popular or not, if it's not doing the numbers, it gets canceled. And and we've seen that. I don't know how many times. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the, the, the tug between the. The folks who want to make something that is entertainment and the folks who want to make something that is going to make the money. And this is not a new challenge. This is not a new uh, issue. This has gone back since there was the first set of, you know, publishing. Yeah. Uh, the, the one, as soon as people realized you could sell books, 
um, and this this became an issue, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. No, um, it's not. I saw a there's a there's a big thing going on right now. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, uh, but um, how Barnes and Noble is purchasing books is oh, I changed. Heard anything about that? And it has become a real issue because the the guy who's currently running Barnes and Noble the um, is used used to be the president of Waterstones over in the UK, and and helped make Waterstones profitable again. His goal is to do the same thing with Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble has been losing money. Didn't Waterstones buy Barnes and Noble? Don't they own it now? I don't think so. Because that's what I was thinking had happened. Um, but there, anyway. what what he's decided that he's going to do is instead of buying um, a bunch of hardcovers in the mid-range, so not your bestsellers, um, he's, they're not going to do that anymore. They're going to move a lot of the purchasing decisions to the store level. So you're going to have a lot more control of what your individual store and your individual market has in terms of what's on its shelves. Right. I've been a book dealer before. There's some attractions to that. The downside is, is that most authors are in the mid-range. Yeah. And if you're in the mid-range, the challenge is for you as an author, especially if you're a new author, is that your competition for promotion is much more difficult. You're not you're not competing against Stephen King. You're competing against everybody who's at your level. And if you're new, your level is lower end of mid-range right people yeah. people don't know enough about you to to want to buy your book so this becomes a challenge for the the to a lot of people look at this as the publishing industry just shrunk for for the range of authors you can get he's saying no it if you want it to be that way you can do that but what i'm telling you is that the store level you can focus more on those mid-range authors for your store. Yeah. Now, that sounds nice. There are some real problems with that because of purchasing power and leverage and things like that. But it's interesting because the, just like with, with film and television, the business model shifts over time. Um, right. I was around when, when the internet was going to wipe out the bookstore. Not just... Not just the mom and pop shops, but Barnes and Noble and Borders were concerned, and and rightly um, rightly so because it almost did. I mean, Borders and, is gone. Yeah, but that's not what killed Borders. Border what killed Borders was a bunch of incompetence at the top. Ten years, ten years. I, I worked I for Borders. I, they were a good <laughs> company once. They shot them. They mm, they 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 old yellered. The company they well, took it around back behind the barn. We'll have to circle back to this this particular topic because we're actually already over our uh, over we our are. hour. Um, well, and and you know the the blurred line between film and TV. I mean, uh, uh, Dave was asking about you know when when we talk about TV, we're also talking about streaming. You could probably even extend that analogy out, not just. TV and streaming, but also video platforms like YouTube and and sure. Odyssey and Rumble and and all of those all of those video platforms that Reuters says is full of 
hate and racism and whatever and all that. Hold on. <laughs> we're on those platforms and we're not doing any of that. Well, uh, but it's not YouTube, so it's terrible. You know, that's that's the narrative. Well, now from I Reuters, think that but it's it. But that but that line is yeah. starting to blur mm -hmm. there, too, because your online video is it. I mean, YouTube or, or Odyssey is not any different from streaming it on Netflix. No, and and YouTube, I'm YouTube has their own production studios, right? I don't pay it. I don't pay much attention to. They have a, had, they has, have a studio in California for creators to use. I don't think YouTube produces anything of their own outside of instructional okay. videos and how to stuff. And here's here's the next feature, and here's the updates right, that we're going right, right. to do, and here's how you're going to make money unless you're doing live streams because we don't like you doing live streams. We want you to just upload everything and do shorts. Sure. But I think that, I mean, realistically, there's probably has been and probably will be conversations in the YouTube offices about producing their own content for their own streaming platform, because that seems to be what everybody's doing. Yeah. Um, you know, and what we see on what we call network television, which is what basic cable. Yeah. ABC, um, CBS. Yeah. Versus what we see on the streaming services or the, or the prestige platforms. Um, the lines are much fuzzier than they used to be. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah Dave says chaos. YouTube creates something. It's called chaos. Well, see, and and that goes back, you know, because I got the email about, and I've complained about this uh, a couple of times now. I won't spend too much time on it here, but there's this new monetization tool on on YouTube. There's this new way that you can make money on YouTube. It's called a super thanks button. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right, in, yeah. in live streams, you have the super chats and you have the the super stickers and whatnot. And you can you can click on the little dollar sign at the bottom and you can put money into the stream. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, the super thanks is this new thing where if you have a video that you have, you can click on that and you can throw money at the creator. But it's only available for videos that are uploaded, not the live streams. And if you're uploading a video, if you set it to premiere, so like at one o'clock it will play as if it's mm -hmm. live, it's your super thanks are not available for those either. So your so YouTube is basically essentially sabotaging every live creator by denying them this monetization tool. And I have to sit there and think, why are they doing that? It's because they want because shorts aren't live mm -hmm. and they're going after that TikTok stuff, right? They're going after the TikTok crowd. Do your short. It's 60 seconds or less. And now it's an it's an upload. They're not they're not live streams. Do this thing. And here's this monetization tool that you could use when you upload a video. Dumb. Absolutely dumb. Yeah, anyway, it's not particularly uh, doing anything for me in terms of making no, sense. Because I don't want to do shorts. I really don't want to do shorts. I understand. There's no point to it. I mean, they, they serve no purpose, especially for what we kind of do. So, right. anyway, all right. So, all that being said, <sighs> here's all of the places where you can find us online. Uh, and, you know, a number of different video platforms. You can find us on all the different social medias. 
the PayPal tip jar might at some point go away. I'm not sure because they're about to change the rules on that. And I don't know exactly what it's going to do to us because they say business accounts are no longer going to be able to accept personal money transfers from outside the United States. Oh, okay. Okay, what does that mean? I guess people who are living right. in Canada can't give me any money because I have a business account on PayPal now. And what? How is that going to work? So, we're I I sent it over to the money guys, and I was like, "What is? How am I reading? Am I reading this right? Does this say what I think it's going to say?" <sighs> it's annoying. It's annoying. It's just it's just time to retire. It's just time to quit. So, by the way, we did get paid from YouTube today. So there's that. <laughs> Not a lot, but we got something. All right, that's going to do it all for right. us. Thanks very much, all of you, for being here. All if right, you are here in replay, you can still leave us a comment. And of course, uh, feedback, uh, email h2o at sci fi for me.com if you want to suggest a topic. Uh, and, uh, and tune in for a later discussions next week. We'll, we'll have something else that we'll talk about. Uh, coming up on Wednesday, live from the bunker number 450. I have no idea what we're going to do yet. And then on Friday, I'm going to draw from my 34 years of expertise in media <coughs> and offer up some tips for you indie creators out there who need to put together a media kit. And I'm telling you now, you need to put together a media kit. So I'm going to go through a list of some things that you need to think about for that. That'll be on Friday, live from the bunker. Uh, Ranker Pit tomorrow night. So we've got a full week. So tune in for all of that. Make sure you have your notifications turned on so, uh, so you kind of know when we go live, if YouTube decides to tell you. Uh, but we do have a schedule. So anyway, there is that. And we'll be back to do this all next week. Thanks very much for being here, folks. All right, guys. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2022, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.